Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. We're going to close down our time in James today. Really excited. It's been a long journey so far. And something that has been a theme for me in the book of James, it's always been easy on my ears. uh, But this time around, it's been kind of hard on my heart as well. James is really digging in uh, to some some stuff. Again, it's, it's easy to hear, but if we let it give it a chance, it's hard on our hearts. Um, if you have a kid, probably who maybe just left the room, uh, if you have a child, you don't have to imagine this scenario, uh, but let's do this together. Imagine this scenario. You're in your kitchen, and you hear a crash uh, in the other room. You run in there, and you see something of value to you has been splattered on the ground. Anybody have a memory with that, maybe? Um, The ideal child who definitely broke it, the ideal child would be there standing in front of the mess and would look at you and say, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me and teach me how to make sure this never happens again? That would be the ideal child. I've never met that child. Maybe you have. Um, What do they actually do? Run away, cry, hide. Uh, Reminds me... We, us people in the student ministry, we just wrapped up a series in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And Adam and Eve, when they break, tarnish God's perfect creation, the first thing they do is they, they run and hide from God. They cover themselves and they even start to blame each other. It's the first symptom of sin is shame and, and blame and hiddenness from God. Uh, what James is doing at the very end of this book that is jam-packed with truth and hard things to hear is he is going to answer the question for us is this. In that moment of shame or in that moment of suffering, in that moment of where you need healing, what is it that a Jesus follower is supposed to do? When you need a weight lifted off your shoulders or you need to find some comfort, what is it that you as a Jesus follower is to do? So we're going to pick up in James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him in oil with oil in the name of the Lord. And 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Okay, so we'll stop there. We're going to go to the end of the passage, but we'll camp out in those few verses first. Um, This is not breaking news to us, if you've been following Jesus for a while, that, you know, as Christians, we are supposed to pray. Is that breaking news, anybody? Because if it is, I'm really glad you're here, because your brain just exploded. Pray? What does that mean? Prayer. Um, Not breaking news. Pray. This passage is a lot more than that. It's actually, it's not just saying Christians pray. It's saying here is when to pray and here's why to pray. In other words, we have moments to pray and motives to pray. We have a when and a why right here at the beginning of this passage. A when and a why to pray. When we think about that question, why, we have rhythms to prayer. We were taught as a child, this is how I pray. Or you memorize the Lord's Prayer. This is kind of the the structure that I've been given to pray. I pray because I was taught to, or I pray because it's awkward to start a meal without praying, right? Those are our kind of rhythms that we have for prayer. Uh, But this passage wants to change our why from our rhythms to God 
hears us when we pray. This is our motivation to pray. But before we get there, we have these moments to pray, suffering and cheer. So wherever here and left the room, you guys are going to play the part of, I'm sorry, of, of times of suffering. We love you. And way over here, times of cheer. In between this moment of suffering and moment of cheer, there's a lot of ground to cover, yes? A lot of ground to cover. Somewhere in the, in the middle right here, you have, I'm happy but I, you know, I have a life. I have that mortgage payment coming up, whatever. And then over here, you're going to get more towards I'm um, sad or I'm struggling and even suffering. And then way over here, cheer. Like when was the last time you described your life as I'm cheerful right now? That's rare, right? Maybe in a few weeks at Christmas time, I'm feeling the cheer. Um, but, but that's rare. And I think what James is doing in, in, in setting those two moments apart is, is showing us that in every moment, those, in that one, in this one, in every moment in between is an invitation to go to the Lord, Rather it, whether it's through prayer, which is uh, going to the Lord and inviting him into your heartache, or in cheer, letting him receive all the praise and all the glory that is due to him because of this cheer. He's worthy of our praise, but he is also um, available to us in our times of need and in our times of struggle. So we have these two moments to pray and every moment in between. It's an invitation to live a life tethered to God in every moment, in every emotion, and in every experience, and to go to him in every moment. So somewhere in this spectrum, you will arrive to an experience or moment of sickness. This is in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So this verse has uh, caused some conversation in church history. What are elders? What's that role? And then oil. So as a church family, let's talk about it and just promise me, like, let's not freak out about it, okay? Uh, Elders, let's talk about elders first. This is an invitation for you when you have a time of need, physical healing. I need physical healing. This is an invitation for you to step into the community that God has you physically placed in and to go to the people that God has placed in your life to be shepherds over you and to guide you in your faith. This is simply it. My definition of sick is this. Anybody who needs any kind of healing at all, physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing, relational healing, any kind of healing you need, this is an invitation for you to go towards the community that God has made available to you. This is the purpose of the church. This is why he's given us the church. And to say, I need prayer in this. I need healing. Would you lift that up to God on my behalf? Sometimes when we hear an invitation or, or we say, hey, I have a prayer request, our first um, response is to say, oh, well, I know a great specialist at this hospital. Or go to this clinic, but don't go to this one because it's bad or whatever. Like, like we give reasons. We give, like, this is something that's worse for me. Medicine is good. I'm no doctor, though. Um, what this passage is doing is saying, okay, yeah, medicine is good. But have you seen what prayer can do for physical healing? 
So we have this moment to pray in, pray in moments of sickness. We need to take those moments to God. And rather than making God a last resort, invite God into that space and into this experience. So for, for the elders and for, for church, it's, it's saying, hey, dive into this community that God has given you. Dive into it, invest in it, and commit to praying for each other. So what do we do with the oil? Some say that this oil actually has some kind of a medicinal quality. And for my essential oil people in the room, I just made your year. Like, this is great. Um, This is your life verse, right? Um, I don't lean that way. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Because that's not really anywhere else in Scripture. What is all over Scripture is this idea of a symbolic anointing. Look at Jesus. Right before he goes into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, he is anointed to do so. Or King Saul or King David, for example, when he's very young, he is anointed on his forehead to be king. But that's not going to happen for many years down the road. So anointing is a symbolic representation of the fact that God has set this person aside for a very special purpose. And he's going to do something for his glory through their life. So, does the oil have a medicinal quality to it? Probably not. Maybe it smells good. But it is certainly a symbolic representation that God, that we are praying for God to do something miraculous, to do something special, and to certainly physically heal uh, this person that we are putting oil upon. We have oil here, and we've seen this happen. We just anoint somebody in the name of the Lord um, with oil, as a symbolic representation, similar to communion, the bread and the water. Is there any power in those elements? No. The power is in the obedience. The power is in the symbolism. The power is in what it reminds us is true of the Lord and of his church. So uh, the oil, is there power in the oil? No, there's not. But there is an emphasis on prayer. Prayer comes first. It should be our first option and our first resort when we need physical healing. So the, the, the danger of these kind of verses is that we latch on to the difficult things. What is an elder or, or what is this oil supposed to do? And when we latch on to those difficult or uncomfortable things, we miss the truth of the verse entirely. The point of verse 14 is simple. It is this, to be a prayerful person in a prayerful community. That's the verse 14. To be a prayerful person in a prayerful community. And this is the beautiful thing that's tucked away in this passage, but it gives it legs to stand on, this idea of community. Um, James assumes that his audience for the book of James are involved in this kind of community, gospel community, prayerful, engaged with each other in prayer. He just assumes that this is true of them. So nowhere in the Bible will you be told that in order to find healing, this kind of physical healing or spiritual healing, nowhere will you be told that what you need to do is go and seclude yourself, isolate yourself so that you can muscle your way through your sin so that one day you might be able to rejoin the church. You're never going to find that in Scripture. It's the opposite. It is dive into it, be vulnerable, and as we'll see here in a second, to confess your sins. Do the uncomfortable thing for your own good. So the normal means is this, of being a Jesus follower, is to be invested, heavily invested, into the gospel community 
that he has physically placed you in and that is readily available to you. Here we call ours Heritage Park Baptist Church. The community that is readily available to you is the place of healing. So it's an invitation to to invite that community into your life. Don't push it away. Don't stiff arm it. Don't be hesitant. Dive straight in to the community that is readily available to you. So we have these moments to pray, moments to be engaged in prayer with God for each other. From suffering to cheer, from sickness and every moment in between. An invitation to be tethered to the presence of God. Moments to pray. But then we have motives to pray. Verse 15 is going to give us a few motives to pray and give us great motivation to pray. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is great motivation to pray. That God hears your prayers. What more motivation do you really need? Um, What do you need more of? Question to think about. What do you need more of in your life than you need a move of God? Nothing at all. What do you need more of in God? More of in your life than God? Absolutely nothing. So this is a great motivation for us to pray. The fact that God hears our prayers and then he moves as a result of those prayers. And another motivation is that he brings physical healing. God is a God who brings physically, uh, physical healing. We have seen this in our church and we continue to see it. And I know that he's faithful and we will continue to see healing in our church because we're full of people who are broken in a broken world and we need healing. People need healing in our body. You can read this letter just like if James were writing it to our church, write to us. Is anyone among you suffering? Absolutely. Is anyone cheerful? Yes. Is anyone sick? You know what? Yes. We have these realities. This is real for us. And God is a God who physically heals. We are confident in that. And again, medicine is good. He has given us that means, right? Uh, A means of healing that we can uh, rely on and, and use medicine. But Then he says at the last half of verse 15 uh, that the one who is sick, the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, those sins will be forgiven. So this is fascinating to me and really interesting that James has a connection between physical healing and spiritual healing. He kind of ties the two together. It's really interesting to me. Um, And when you think about this, Sometimes I think of um, uh, myself. I know myself pretty well. And uh, when I have sickness coming, throat stuff, sinus stuff, I can really tell early on that it's on its way. So I act really fast. I've got the throat lozenges. I've got the emergency packets. I have like a cranberry kind. It's in my office right now. I have, you know, water and water and water. And most recently, these like special teas from Starbucks. Anybody have these? They're like like medicine teas almost, they're way too expensive, but they work. So what are you going to do? I get them. They're right across the street from my home. So I get those and they work. And what do they do? They they help me in the moment to speak. I speak a lot in my job. God bless our teenagers. A few weeks ago, I was like half a voice. I was really struggling and I preached through it and they wrestled through it. Good job, you guys. I'm proud of you. Um, Sometimes I can't kick it. 
Sometimes I can't kick the throat stuff, can't get rid of the sinus stuff. So what do I do? I have to get an antibiotic. I have to get it in my system, get it to do its thing so that it can get the sickness out. This is the whole idea of antibiotics, right? We want to get the sickness out. Um, We want and we want to pray and we want to have a desire to see physical healing. This is true. But we also need to have an equal desire to see spiritual healing in our body, in our church, but also for our selves. So what's going on right here with this motivation to pray that God would give us physical healing but also spiritual healing, uh, James is trying to get us to consider something. And it's to ask us this question, um, what is my response to my physical illness versus my response to my spiritual illness, to my sin? When we're physically ill, we attack it with everything we have. Some of you go to the doctor immediately. I got to get rid of this. But when it comes to our spiritual sin, we allow it to settle and allow it to sit. We don't take it as seriously as we would a common cold. So James is trying to get us to consider that, that what if we took our um, spiritual sickness as seriously or more seriously than we do our spiritual illness? I feel like this is maybe what James is trying to get us um, to do. And every once in a while we can't kick it. We've got to get it an antibiotic to kick it out, to kick the sickness out, which is why he lands where he does in verse 16. Take a look in verse 16. It says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So confession. This confession is the act of getting the sin out into the light, getting it into, stepping into vulnerability, right? This is what confession of sin is. But he says, therefore, this is important. Everything, when he says therefore, he is saying, everything I've been saying up until this point is to lead up to this, the center of this passage, to be about confessing your sin and stepping into that vulnerable moment of confession. So this is our moments to pray and this is your motives to pray. But the question is, how do you know to pray for those things? Because the people in your life have exposed themselves to you and they have confessed things to you and they have asked you to pray for things in their life. If you are in sin, though, um, and the sin is doing its job, it's going to make remind you of your brokenness. It's going to remind you of your, your shame. It's going to remind you of itself consistently. But eventually what it's going to do is something else. It's going to make you feel like you are the only person there, which makes confession seem like an impossibly difficult task to do because in your brain, you're the only person struggling with this. And confession is like the loneliest thing that you could step into. What this passage does is is it, it wants to grab you and rip you out of that reality and show you this is what life could be in gospel community. This is the beauty that is available to you, honestly, within the people that are sitting around you right now in this moment. This is the beauty of gospel community, and it is available to you. And it wants to show you that, yes, confession of sin is difficult, 
It is one of the hardest things you can do. It's the most humbling thing and the most vulnerable thing you can do. And he saves it till the end of the book, I think, on purpose because he realizes how difficult it is to open yourself up to people in your life. But he does this to show us that this is the beauty that is available to you in gospel community. So it rips us out and it shows us what can be. So he gives us these moments and he gives us motives to pray. But all of this happens in this confine, in in this beautiful picture of what gospel community is. And again, confession is people coming to you and saying, this is what I'm struggling with. And would you join me in praying for me on my behalf so that I can continue through and ultimately find freedom from this? This is what confession is. So as a church family, I want to challenge us. Let's not take it lightly when somebody asks us to pray for them. Again, sometimes we get a prayer request and we say, well, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Like, we want to do that. We want to be helpful and courteous. But let's take it to God first. Let's take it to the Lord. Because when somebody asks you for prayer, it might seem like a small thing, um, but they're not asking you for your support. They're not asking you for your thoughts. They're not asking you for your posts. They are asking first for your prayer. Let's invite God into our struggles. Let's invite God into our suffering and not try to beat it on our own and then discover that we can't beat it on our own. So now I better get God involved. Do it from the very beginning. So let's not take it lightly because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So something I want to show you in this um, in this picture in verse 16, is that there are two roles to play and everybody has a role to play in this relationship. Everybody has a role. It's either you are confessing or you're the one praying. You're either confessing or you're praying. This, he splits us right in two, into two groups. You can either be the person confessing your sin or the one praying for your sin. So if you're not confessing your sin, it doesn't mean you're off the hook. It actually means the responsibility is now yours to be the person lifting up the one who is confessing, the one who is in need of healing, spiritual healing. So um, your job, your role to play only increases when you're not the one confessing sin. So be involved and be in tune with, pe- with what people are struggling with, with the people in your life. The prayer of a righteous person has great power. And what I love here is that Prayer is not restricted to elders and it's not restricted to pastors. Anybody and everybody who's a believer in Jesus has the ability to pray, but also great capacity and great power in their prayer. Prayer is not something that has to be reserved for the educated, reserved for the fancy. Like, like I said, I'm not a doctor. I don't have a PhD. I can't write prescriptions. But there was nothing I would love more and, and all the pastors of our church, there's nothing we would love more than to link arms with you in prayer. This is what we want to do. But, but you don't just have to do that with the shepherds in your life. Everybody in your circle, everybody in your community, the gospel community around you has the capacity and the ability to pray for you in a very effective way. Everybody has a role and great news is this. Um, This is happening in our church. Prayer is happening in our church. 
Every, I'm here every Wednesday night, and there's a prayer group that happens in the library every single Wednesday night, and I get to see them, and they pray for the students, and they pray for everything going on in the church. It means the world to me. Uh, but these stories of the ways God is moving in prayer, they travel through our hallways. We sit as a staff on Tuesday mornings, and we pray through everything we can think of that's going on in our body. Um, but we hear the stories. This is great. We hear the moves of God that are happening, and it's incredibly encouraging. But I want to tell you that there is no limit and there is no capacity to what God can do in a church that is committed to praying for each other. There is no limit to what God can do when a church is committed to praying for each other. And he's going to show us an example. James shows us an example of what fervent prayer can do in verses 17 and 18. And this is one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament to preach about. I cannot preach about it today, um, but you guys probably know the story. It's, it's, it's when they have the showdown at Mount Carmel, where, where Elijah calls fire down from the sky, and it comes and licks everything up, and, and the prophets of Baal are defeated. Does this ring any bells? Yeah? So there's a context that James gives us before and after that story. He's writing to a Jewish audience. So they're going to know this story. It's going to be one of their favorite stories. They're going to know it really well. Um, and, and, and it's basically this. God says to Elijah, I want you to tell King Ahab that there's going to be a drought. He tells him, and sure, sure thing, there's a drought. Some years go by and they have their showdown. But right before the showdown, God tells Elijah, I'm going to send rain again. It is on its way. Rain is coming. And then they have their showdown, fire from the sky, looks everything up, would make a great movie. Um, And then right afterwards, Elijah is there on the ground, face on the ground, praying that God would send rain. What's curious about that? God already said that rain would come a chapter before. He already said that rain was coming. So the point that I think James' audience would understand that I want us to grasp in this example is that we need to pray in accordance with God's word. We need to pray in line, align ourselves and align our prayers with what God has already said. Prayer cannot be about us bending God towards our will. It can't be about that. It has to be, in fact, the opposite. It has to be God bending and forming and shaping us to look a lot more like him. This is what prayer is supposed to do properly. It's supposed to uh, realign us with God so that our desires become his desires, our wants become his wants. So in the New Testament, when Jesus says, pray to God, like we prayed earlier, bring your anxieties and bring your burdens to him. Ask God for anything you want. Jesus says that. Anything you want. Anything I want? Well, when your wants are God's wants, what is really happening in that moment? It is you saying, God, I want you to do what you want to do in this situation, in this scenario. And Lord, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I know that you are good. I know that you are a source of truth, and I know that you want and desire glory. So Lord, would you do what you want to do in this scenario? This is what's happening when we pray in accordance with God's word and in line with who he is. It is, Lord, would you take, like Jesus says, would you take your kingdom in heaven and bring it on earth? Our prayers are all about desiring the glory of God to intersect 
with where we are in this broken reality. And there's a whole sermon in there um, that we want to see God's, God's world and God's order and God's goodness intersect with us. And one of the means we can do that is right here in prayer. So we need to pray in accordance with God's word. That way our desires become his desires and our wants become his wants. So um, I'll close with verse 19 and 20, if that's okay with you, because it is the end of the book. So I'm kind of going to run out of space eventually. Um, 19 and 20, I think, give us the application that we need from these verses. Um, let's read it. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Um, a lingering question that I skipped over in this passage is in verse 15. Read, read it to yourself once for one second, just verse 15. says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Question, does that mean every single time we pray for a believer that that believer will be healed? Careful, it's a trick question. We've, we've prayed for healing. Like I said, we have prayed for healing and we have seen healing. We are praying for healing right now and we are seeing healing. Praise the Lord, let it continue. But yes, it's a trick question because the answer to that question is yes. God will heal every believer, just possibly not on our terms, right? Possibly not on our terms. So, what's the invitation? Well, it's to align ourselves with God. It's to trust in His goodness. It's to trust in His sovereignty. It's to trust in His plan because the end goal of all of this even the end goal of physical healing is to see 19 and 20 become a reality. To see the wanderer come back to truth. It is to see the one who has gone off like a prodigal son come back to the home and come back to the father and to save souls from death. The end goal is, um, it is salvation. To put it more in James's language, and what I think is honestly the entire theme of this whole book, and I did not run this by Tramp, but I think it's right. Um, the end goal of this book is to us as a gospel community secure each other and to find freedom from sin in gospel community with that leading us to glorification with God, leading us to salvation. This is the end goal of James. And it's the end goal and the purpose of the church, of gospel community. I use the term gospel community because church has become like, it can become like this construct, right? It's a thing that we do. Gospel community is a thing that we are. It's who we are supposed to be. Um, so James, yes, he says some very difficult things, all for the purpose of bringing us to glorification. Yes, through physical healing, where God receives the glory, but then also... Through salvation, God bringing us back to himself, ultimately and eternally. This is the point of the, of the book, that we would be the church of Jesus and gospel community. So when you see a brother, this is our responsibility as a gospel community. When you see a brother, you see a sister wandering, going away, it's your responsibility 
to go to that person and grab them by the shoulders and say, go in the wrong way, turn around. It's our responsibility, our job to take people and bring them back to the middle and bring them back to the center and encourage and to pray for each other. And prayer, prayer is the ground that we walk upon in faith to see God sustain us and to see him preserve us in gospel community. Prayer is the ground we walk on. It's the way we travel. It's the way we operate within this gospel community. It's the way we tie ourselves and unite ourselves to each other as a church. So to close, I just thought um, I'd put some questions before you. Now, I'm, a, I'm, I'm our youth pastor, so I'll talk to you teenagers for a second. What would the, your life, what would the person next to you, what would your life look like if you guys committed to praying for each other every day, constantly? Like, how would that change our student ministry? Think about that. But that can be blown up to every ministry in the church. What would, how would things look differently if we committed to praying for each other, to being in tune with what our families, with what your people are going through. How can I pray for you? And again, we're not asking for thoughts and prayers. No, we're asking to intercede and to commune with God and to invite him into everything that's going on so that we're tethered to him in every situation in life. And we want to do that in community. So how powerful would it be if, if somebody asks you for prayer and you stop in that moment, put a hand on their shoulder and go to God right then and there? That's powerful. That's needed in Christian community. Um, so all the ministries of our church, your Sunday school classes and your small groups during the middle of the week, how could they be transformed if we committed to praying for each other? I think it would be amazing. And there's no limit to what God can do um, in a church that is committed to praying for each other. But maybe you're listening to all this and you're like, I don't have people praying for me and I don't have people to pray for. What's the, uh, what's the response? What's the invitation to that? Well, it's this, that this kind of gospel community, let's look at the results. There is forgiveness from sin in there. There's confession of sin. There is healing in there, in gospel community. So the invitation is this. Come on, get in there. It's readily available to you. The people you're sitting around right now are ready to take you in. This is why we have Sunday schools and that's why we have small groups in the middle of the week to give opportunities to foster this kind of gospel community that can give you the kind of healing that you so desperately need when you're searching for it. So, Gospel community is readily available to us. But lastly, just think about this. Who do you know in your life that is wandering? We all have an answer to this question. Who do you know? Who do you know in your life that needs to be, have an arm wrapped around them and brought back into the circle, brought back to the center and brought back to the middle that is Jesus. The responsibility of a Christian, of a gospel community, is that in prayer and in faith, we would do that. And we would pray to see, yes, physical healing, but also spiritual healing that brings people back and back and back. Let me pray that it would be true of us, and then we'll worship together. Uh, Jesus, we love you, and we come to you now in response to this passage. That encourages us 
to be a prayerful person in a prayerful community. Lord, I pray that that would be true of every single one of us in this room. That we would be committed to praying for each other, to see physical healing, but also to see salvations happen, Lord, to see baptisms come, to see more baptisms, Lord. Um, And that we would be committed to um, sharing burdens, to sharing struggles, so that in times of suffering, everybody in our church would know that they don't have to bear that alone. Lord, I pray that would be true of us. So right now, as we sing, Lord, help us, help our worship to be a choice. Help it to be a genuine choice of, Lord, we want to step into this invitation to give you praise and to give you the glory that you are due, Lord, because you work and because you hear our prayers. Lord, you are good, you are gracious, and we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.